0: From the hills of central New York and in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. Raised in the mushroom capital of the world outside Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Professor Mike Fidanza at Penn State Berks campus, with a courtesy appointment at the mothership in State College, is one of the leading voices in the turfgrass industry. Professor Fidanza is a graduate of Penn State with his bachelor's and master's and a PhD at the University of Maryland with Emeritus Professor Peter Noten. He studied and modeled crabgrass germination in brown patch during his graduate studies and has become an international expert on fairy rings and hydrophobic soils. As an educator, Mike teaches a variety of plant science classes at Burke's campus and has published a few papers on teaching and educating plant science students. I know him for his effervescent personality and commitment to all those around him, family, students, professional turfgrass managers, and fellow academics. What a joy to have some time to chat with Mike Fidanza. Mike Fedanza, welcome to Frankly Speaking. Thanks for taking the time out to chat with us.
1: Oh great, Frank. So glad to finally be here. <laughs> I've been following you on TurfNet for a long time. Hey, I want to say real quick, love your bumper music, you know, the intro. <laughs> a g- great classic uh, jazz take on that song. I love That's it. That's
0: right. You, Masekela, who we just lost this past year. Well, listen, speaking of the year of losses, there was a lot of turf loss uh, in your neck of the woods, what I would consider the mid-Atlantic, uh, Philly, D.C., uh, Bermuda Triangle of turf, if you will, down there, Mike. Uh, The 2018 season is as tough a one for you guys as I can remember with both uh, temperature uh, of record levels and, of course, moisture at, uh, you know, build-the-arc kinds of levels down there. Uh, What would you say so far as we uh, approach the end of the season was the biggest takeaway from this year? Well,
1: I I guess overall talking to golf course superintendents in the region and lawn care folks and some sports field managers, you know, bottom line is just sound agronomics programs. Um, Think about the earlier part of the year. I remember uh, spring was really delayed. We had sort of this late winter. I mean, first of all, in this region, the Eagles won the Super Bowl, so I think that messed (laughs) everything up. You know, that really, everybody was just shocked and surprised and whatever. And then, so, okay, winter was, was, was just hanging on. And then spring got here for like a week, and then it went right into summer. And we've had um, some, some really hot, I think early on in, in June and early July, it was so hot, it was even too hot for Pythium. <laughs> and there was some dollar spot breaking out in June on some golf courses. And then it got so hot, the dollar spot even just melted away. But so did the turf. And, and if you had poor root systems going into the summer, man, that, that had to be hard for, for a lot of courses. And then the rain came. Oh, it just wouldn't. It just wouldn't let up. I was just trying to compile some weather data the other day for a report, and uh, this has been for the southeastern region where I'm located in, in Reading, Pennsylvania. It's been our wet, wettest summer on record for many, many decades. Um, typical August weather, August rainfall for us is around three and a half to four inches total. I think this year, I just looked. We had almost 20 inches of rain in August. It's just too wet and there's nowhere to put the water.
0: And then the humidity comes and there's no place not just to put the water, but there's no place for the water to move through the system. And so when you have all that water in the system, Mike, obviously what you said earlier about agronomic programs is key. And I know you mean sort of a well-drained Uh, root zone, if you have uh, poor rooting typically associated with those high surface organic matter levels, right? Um, those were probably the worst conditions. So let's just take a minute and draw on some of your academic experience that I'm aware of with regard to water management. One of the things I did hear from some people this year was how the use of wetting agents or soil penetrants or whatever Mm -hmm. we want to call them, how they may have held water up in the surface even more uh could you explain that at all from a wetting agent perspective mike
1: yeah that that's a that's a difficult question to uh to respond to um in in terms of trying to come up with a clear black and white answer yeah. <laughs> um w- scientifically uh th- these products are referred to as soil surfactants but in the industry we all refer to them as wetting agents and it's hard to say to describe, well, do some of these products hold water? Do some of these move water and, and penetrate water? It's it's very difficult to, to test that, to show that scientifically in a lab. Um, but the perception is is real that superintendents may feel that I applied product A and it seemed like I got better infiltration and water was moving through the system and I applied product B and it looks like it just held the water <laughs> there and it just kept it moist in the surface. So that that's a challenge um, We've been working with some folks, uh, soil physics folks, to try to figure this out. But I think it's um it's a it's a situation in my experience with these wetting agent products is superintendents uh, have to find the one that works best for their for their system for their sand based greens for their native soil fairways and what what may work on one golf course may not work on the other. What may work on one green may not work on another green. There's there's so many products out there. Um. A a recent search, uh, working with a colleague, and I think we we counted over 200 products, wedding agent products out there, and and uh, fortunately or unfortunately rather, very few have scientific research or field trial data behind them. so it's,
0: yeah, so it's, so it's so I just want to go back for a second, Mike, because I know that, you know, you've traveled the world speaking on in a- academic forums. Uh, I've seen you uh, in pictures with uh, you know our boy Johnny uh, in Florida <laughs> and and Stan Koska, um pictures yes. at uh, soil physics conferences where you're thinking yeah. about this at academic level. So you have the bona fides to speak of this. Do you honestly, are you honestly saying that we can't show what these products do when people say hold water, drain water? We can't show that scientifically. That that's mostly a perception.
1: I think I think so. Yes. I mean, there's you, you can you can test infiltration rates and you can test water holding capacities. And, and again, not not to throw these products under the bus because they're very valuable products. They're very, they're actually very useful in terms of water conservation strategies. Wetting agents are very very important. Um, really changed the game, I guess, since they were introduced many years ago. They become part of cultural pro- agronomic programs, fungicide right. program, wedding, uh, herbicide, pro- wedding agent program, water management programs. Right. And yes, with so Dr. Stan Koska there uh, and uh, and our buddy Dr. John Cesar, we've been going to these conferences, trying to tap into these soil physics folks and trying to get some understanding on how how a water molecule can move through the soil of these wedding agents, as, as you know, they sort of break the surface tension of these water droplets. That's right. Some do that very fast and some do that very slowly. And that might be where the perception is there, where water moves quickly through the soil and water moves slowly through the soil. And it, it maybe that, that's what's what's confusing us or tripping us up.
0: Well, and, of course, all of this is very much, as you said, dependent on two things that are maybe unique at each property, the amount of sand and organic matter matrix, uh, percentages of each that you have at the surface, and, yeah. and the way in which you water. I would imagine a, a, yeah. a, a water manager that really pushes the envelope, uh, lets that surface dry, promotes good deep rooting by, you know, infrequent and deep, Irrigation practices that utilize that profile uh, to its full depth. uh, That person that allows the soil to dry more at the top might be different than a push up green that struggles yes. to sort of deal with the two inches, three inches of sand they've got on top of that layer that changes dramatically, that they're always trying to aerify and break through. So I'm yes. assuming that's what you mean when you say sort of it's dependent on how each person manages water. Those are two of a few of the factors that are critical.
1: Yeah, so, Frank, you, you said it better than I could. <laughs> and, and really, it's... um. It really comes down to these turf grace managers has to monitor that, that soil moisture level using either the, the the TDR probe or the POGO, which is a very good, very good product. Monitoring is very, very important to know what that soil volumetric water content is. The superintendents have to figure out that threshold. How much can they dry down that root zone before they need to add the water? Right. And every, everyone's different It's some... It's not a, and not to pick on fungicide programs, nothing like that. It's not like a 14-day fungicide right. program or a 7-day or 21-day. Right. This is everyday monitoring, keeping an eye on it, adding water when you have to. And like you mentioned, organic matter, organic layer content, things like that. These wetting agents are not going to correct that.
0: That's right.
1: Okay, that, that comes from sound agronomic practices.
0: And, and also, as you mentioned earlier, if you went in with a weak root system, uh, those saturated conditions are 20 yes. inches of rain, you know, compared yeah. to the normal four inches of rain, right? Yes. If you, yes. uh, that is ripe area for patch diseases, summer patch, take-all maybe on bent, yes. and, of course, yes. um, pythium root rot. Now, uh, I'm assuming you probably saw a fair amount of the latter there, pythium root rot. Even though you said it got too hot maybe for the surface pythium blight, yes. it, it may have been perfect for the root pythium.
1: Yeah, I saw a couple of courses that had some just, well, the the superintendent called it the the summer blahs. You know, the turf just looked beat up. It looked tired. Um, Everyone was hot and and sweaty from the summer. (laughs) And and it just looked worn. And much of it was abiotic stress and also mechanical stress. They were trying to raise the mowing heights and alternating, rolling, mowing, things like that. And then when you pulled soil samples, I mean, they threw every fungicide known to man on the on, the, on those greens, there wasn't much in terms of pathogens growing, but the roots just looked just worn out. And sure, you can isolate some pythiums from those roots. Um, you could isolate some weird Curvularias, which is a sign of just plant stress. Um, but overall, I think it was abiotic stress, excess moisture, the heat, um, just the wear and tear. That's right. You know, we, we're trying to count down to the days where they, we get some lower night temps. That, that really helps turn things around.
0: That's right. So so the nighttime temps do help turn things around, and it's funny yeah. to hear you say exactly what we've seen here as well, and that is that the <clears throat> turf can't barely keep up with just the traffic associated with maintenance. That yeah. you have to do to prepare your turf for play, whether it's sports fields or, or golf courses or even lawns in some cases. When you get that amount of rainfall, those low areas don't drain. You try to run a mower through there and you start yeah. rutting it up and now you're creating uh, more work later on. Now, the one thing that did seem to do well this year, Mike, is something that I know you've studied early in your career. And, and we have just given up in many parts of New York State and just said it's it's good to have a crabgrass lawn. Uh, I know you studied (laughs) crabgrass early on in your career with uh, Professor Dunodin, as well as your brown patch model work back then. How has the crabgrass been in your neck of the woods this year?
1: Oh, it just just exploded. (laughs) Um, I'll tell you a little historical background. I know you're a you're well in tune with the history of turf. So I studied under, under Dr. Peter Dernoden University of Maryland and my PhD was plant pathology, working on Rhizoctonia blight. But another grad student started with a master's degree and his project was gonna be crabgrass and trying to model crabgrass emergence. And the student lasted, I think, one or two months. I'm not sure what <laughs> happened. Uh, Dr. Denodin's a great guy. He may not be the easiest person to work for, but we love him. And uh, Anyhow, so he left, and Denoden and, and said, Okay, Mike, uh, you're taking on his project, too, which was the best. That was the best thing to do. So we developed a crabgrass degree day model based on soil temperatures. And, uh, and I needed to go back and always wanted to go back and revisit that work But I think it's your grad student there at Nebraska, Dr. Cruiser, that uh, has taken that to the next level with degree days, and that's awesome to see. But crabgrass this year just exploded. Talking to the lawn care guys, their pre-emergence, the timing they thought was dialed in, but it just wasn't enough to hold it back, and it it just is everywhere everywhere.
0: So when you look back, knowing what you know about pre's, when yes. you think of an, a year like this, and you you could really track it, uh, when you see a year that's as bad like this with crabgrass, you can believe yeah. everybody's going to be thinking about their pre-emergent program, post-emergent program yeah. moving forward. Okay, so in your neck of the woods where the crabgrass pressure came on so quickly, right? You said it, yeah. all of a sudden it was summer, and I yeah. think that lack of acclimation to the summertime – weakened all the cool-season turf, and was ideal for the C4 warm-season crabgrass plants. So if guys did their normal, and I'm assuming in your neck of the woods, a split app is a normal pre-emergent crabgrass control mm-hmm. program, uh, did that work this year? Would, what would you tell them for next year, Mike?
1: Yeah, well, they, they had some breakthroughs. So, some guys, uh, some, some long-care folks rely on a single app. They, they they, sort of over the last few years sort of dialed in, and maybe it was a false sense of security, and they had some major breakthroughs. The folks that did the split app, which I, I like to recommend, uh, use, you know six to eight weeks apart, early spring and then later, uh, they fared better, but still in areas, well, just like you had mentioned, in areas where there's weakened, weakened spots in lawns and then the turf, uh, that's a great example of plant competition. It's Plant Ecology 101. Um, those voids in the turf, so to speak, uh, predisposed the areas. Crabgrass broke through. Um, There wasn't enough material, to pre-emergent material, to just hang on with all this rain we had. Jeez, it it must have diluted it. And so next year, just be more diligent. Um, Watch the timings. Go with the split apps. And um, you you might have to look at the application rates and adjust the rates accordingly. But uh, the split apps definitely fared better than the single apps this year. And I have a nice area, 10,000 square foot area of perennial ryegrass but I didn't put a pre down at all, and I'm, I'm, growing, I'm growing a tremendous crop of crabgrass. <laughs> it's amazing. I'm baling hay out there. Uh, but but you're right that the, the timings might have been a little off, and with the prolonged uh, man with the prolonged rainfall we've had, yeah. it was just a recipe. There's no, I don't think there's any product that really could have given 100% control. I really don't. All right.
0: Let's take a break here, Mike. Uh, Frankly speaking, on the TurfNet Radio Network, I'm with Professor Mike Fedanza at Penn State University Berks Campus outside of Philly. We'll be right back.
2: Finally, a fungicide that's so much more. Civitas Turf Defense is a fungicide, insecticide, and plant protection product that will change the way you look at turf management. Civitas Turf Defense works within the plant to control diseases and pests, reducing requirements for fertilizers and other pesticides. By enhancing stress tolerance, Civitas Turf Defense can reduce water inputs by up to 25% while maintaining acceptable turf quality. Civitas also increases abiotic stress tolerance for improved tolerance to wear and traffic. And with no known resistance issues, there's no worry about maximum yearly application restrictions. Civitas Turf Defense Plant Protection Redefined. There's more to the story. Visit CivitasTurf.com.
0: Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. I'm joined by Professor Mike Fedanza. Mike, listen, you've been busy. Uh, I know the last few years building a uh, research and extension center. At the Burke's campus in Reading, Pennsylvania, one of the 20 satellite campuses for Penn State University. Uh, I heard you talk about that beautiful ryegrass, crabgrass stand you have there, which, you know, is ideal for those looking to do post-emergent weed control trials (laughs) in the Philadelphia area. Uh, See, Mike, uh, for for those needs. Uh, But talk for a minute about uh, how you came up with wanting to do this. It's not like you don't have enough to do, brother. Uh, how did you think about doing this, and, and how has it unfolded so far?
1: I appreciate that, Frank. Yes, on a personal level, i you know, married. I have five children, two sets of twins. So I have very little free time. And uh, when I was hired here at Penn State, I was in industry from '95 to 2000, and I, I loved it. It was outstanding. Great opportunity, though, to come here at Penn State in 2000. And they said they wanted to, to build a, an ag center here course, when I got here, they didn't have any money. They just said, we need you to build it. So I had to to figure out how to pay for it. And you know how it is in academics, Frankie. I wanted to make sure I got tenure first. That was in 2006 before I moved forward on it. So after that, then I started moving forward on developing this center. We have about four acres of sort of a tree and shrub collection, a mini arboretum and a small greenhouse. That's all we had. My colleague, Dr. Dave Sanford is here, on ornamental horticulture. After that, though, I started taking some land. We had about 98 acres of land that the campus rents out to a local farmer. And every year I've slowly been taking a little more land to add more turf plots. But I have to tell you, the only way I've done this, I'm going to be honest with you, is with industry support, Mm -hmm. the reps from the different companies and the lawn care folks and golf course superintendents. They've all been very generous. Mark Coons there at Baltus Raw, Penn State alum, had donated a triplex mower for me. Uh, these superintendents are very, very generous. There's been a couple of times, Frank, I'm going to be honest with you, where I wasn't sure I wanted to do this. Like, you got to be kidding me. I got to build this thing. But I got so much support from industry. And so right now it's 20, 25 acres. And the university last year, they finally fenced it in. I think they were afraid I was going to take more land <laughs> than. Uh, and I have blocks of ryegrass, bluegrass. I have uh, 30,000 square feet of fairway height bent grass. I work with the local Toro Distributor Turf Equipment Supply Company for putting in irrigation, and we've had field day events where we, we bring folks in, we, we trench, we put in the HDP piping. So we make it an extension outreach kind of thing, and it's Band-Aids and duct tape, but it's really moving forward. We're also working on um, getting a uh, actual par-4 fairway, T-fairway and green, we're looking to install that is maybe the only facility that's going to have an actual par four, um, and the only way I'm doing it is industry folks are all volunteering to do this.
0: Let me interrupt you, and because I know yes. from listening to the story and building turf grass programs, uh, yes. there's a couple of things that are important. Yes, you have such a vibrant uh, and wonderful personal life, but at the same time, much of your work, as I know, because I've seen your publications and and your efforts that you've put into teaching is the primary responsibility that you have there uh, in your sort of day job. And this yeah. work is, uh, I think, demonstrating a couple of things, Mike. One is your commitment to extension and industry stuff that I know everybody that works for Dunodin, uh gets a strong sense of service when they do yeah. that. And I think the donations and things that you're getting are a sign of the great need, that the industry has for unbiased land grant kind of science, where you're not trying to sell them anything, you're not over-promoting anything. And I think in a year like this, it would have been really good to have a fair amount of side-by-side plots, as much as we ask guys to do it on their facilities, having a place where they can go and gather, network, and look at the latest research... I tell you, Mike, it, it's a big yeah. need. I mean, guys like you and even Steve McDonald, who does it in the private sector, I, I think the whole industry has remained reliant on it as turf rest extension uh, commitments have declined, right? I mean, this is filling a big need.
1: Yes, it really is, and it's, um, it, it opened my eyes because I, had, I hosted four field day events this year. I hosted a couple of last year. Uh, one was in June for the, the sports turf folks, CAFMO. We've had uh, two events in in July for industry, and then the third event in August was for the uh, Lawn Care Association of Pennsylvania. Um, Next year I'll have my uh, overall turf field day. So the industry responded, they want to see these kind of field day events. They enjoy coming here. Um, And like you said, I could show different plots and different Mm -hmm. experiments and different demos. I have the space for it. Um, And also I insist on excellent food. People that come to my field (laughs) days, Frank, we have the best food. we got food trucks. (laughs) <laughs> and, and people really enjoy that. Has become a great a, a reputation. But I'm going to take a step back real quick and talk about the Valentine East name. The industry guys started calling it Valentine East because, as you know, at Penn State University Park, we had the Valentine Turfgrass Research Center named after Joe Valentine, Superintendent Marion. You know the history. Yes. And so that's Valentine Center. But this is the eastern part of the state. And I don't know. The industry guys started calling it Valentine East, and so the name kind of stuck But it's actually a center. It has its center designation. It's called the Center for the Agricultural Sciences and a Sustainable Environment. And, you know, academia, it took us four meetings to decide a name where the administrator I think did.
0: you left out a few words like environmental and eco-friendly. Uh, yeah, sort of. Oh, you need a few more buzzwords in that name, don't you think? Oh, my God.
1: Yes, these words were floating around the meeting, and I said, can you guys just please uh, just pick a name? I'll go with whatever. Okay.
0: So, listen, listen. Yes. Let me ask you. Let me just say I'm well-known as a Penn State antagonist. Uh, I tend okay. to poke the big bear uh, <laughs> ah, fairly good, regularly. Good you. Being yeah. a Rhode Island grad and, and now at Cornell and haven't been at Michigan State, I've had a, a pretty good front row seat to the 800-pound gorilla. How how has this worked with your colleagues uh, at the old PSU?
1: Oh, very well. The uh, Dr. Pete Lansku, Dr. John Kaminsky, uh, Andy McNitt, Ben McGraw, you know the whole team there, Dave Huff. They're, they're very happy to have me down here. They can focus on what they need to do in Center County. It's a definitely a great collaboration, great partnership. It's, it's, um, they help me always, whenever they can. It's been really a good partnership. And as you mentioned, the education part, I have a heavy teaching appointment, uh, which has its own rewards, and most of my, my students are here for their first and second year. These are my turf students. And then their third and fourth year, they, go, they complete their degree up at University Park. So I'm sending a steady stream of students up there to uh, the University Park And also teaching the biology program here to support our biology major. So it's been a good partnership with Penn State University Park and Penn State Berks Campus.
0: So how have you liked teaching uh, general biology? It's so interesting because, you know, I teach introduction to horticulture here at Cornell. Many of the listeners don't know that many of us land-grant scientists uh, in not-huge turfgrass programs wind up having to fulfill our teaching requirements in different ways. So how do you like teaching intro biology?
1: Well, it's it's interesting. As you know, most of these students, 99% of these students, do not have a farm background, maybe almost 100%. But a few of their parents come from a farm, and, and many of their grandparents come from a farm. So I want to rename the course, you know, Food Does Not Come From a Grocery Store Shelf. <laughs> and, and it's interesting because, yeah, you, you know, I'm, I'm trying to teach these, these kids uh, where food comes from, food production systems. We talk about production agriculture and mm. And uh, it's been rewarding in that way. It opens their eyes to, to where food comes from and, and that, that once they were – we were all tied to, to rural America. We were all tied to agriculture in, in some way or another. And these kids love to eat, so we talk about their favorite foods and, and where it comes from. and. And, of course, they all think pasta comes from Italy, which, of course, (laughs) you know, I'm not going to tell them otherwise. That's right.
0: (laughs) This is Frankly Speaking. I'm Frank Rossi here in the hills of central New York in the heart of the Finger Lakes. Professor Mike Fedanza is down in Reading, Pennsylvania, at the Penn State University Berks campus. And this is the TurfNet Radio Network. We'll be right back after this message.
2: Golf Course Superintendents all agree. Traditional core aeration is time-consuming, labor-intensive, and unpopular with golfers. Dryject is a revolutionary service that relieves compaction, increases water infiltration, improves gas exchange, and amends your root zone all at the same time, leaving the turf surface smooth and immediately playable. Best of all, an independent Dryject service professional does it for you, there and gone before you know it. Dryject, the only process in the world that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass. Visit DryJet.com to locate your nearest Dryject Service Center.
0: All right, Mike, it's so refreshing to hear you speak about the industry partnerships that you're developing down there uh, in Southeast Pennsylvania and the role that it's playing just for the industry, but also your role in your career as a scientist in the land grant system. And you're contributing in a variety of ways. And at the national level, you are our incoming chair for the Crop Science C5 division. We've got these odd designations, so you'll hear us talk about things like C5 for those listeners don't know what we're talking about. This is the collection of turfgrass scientists, both extension research and teaching uh, that meets at the Crop Science Society of America every year. Uh, We've had Cal Bigelow on the show, Mike, and so now we're continuing that tradition with you. Um, What's it been like uh, so far to begin starting to think about leading this division?
1: Yeah, thank you, Frank the uh, yes the crop science society of america that's our big uh scientific uh, organization we belong to i guess it's it's our version of g c s a if you will and mm-hmm. and we have our big conference in uh, in November this year it's in baltimore, our big scientific society conference uh the industry folks call it our turf nerd conference <laughs> and i've been very fortunate and uh, uh lucky really to be uh, elected as the c five chair division c five turf Grand science chair for this two thousand and eighteen I followed Kel Bigelow, and following him was great because he was able to um, get some things organized and hand it over to me, hand the gavel to me. Mm-hmm. I'll be handing the gavel to Frank Wong next year for 2019. He's the incoming chair. But my role this year is the, the major role is to uh, gather all the uh, the, the, the talks Oral presentations, poster presentations, and, and assemble them in in three days. I, I have to make the schedule. That's that's the most challenging part, <laughs> fitting everybody in on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And we have a Sunday evening program. And then the other part of it, the uh, Chris Stiegler Golf Tournament this year, it's on a Sunday. John Kaminsky and Frank Wong are the chair of that. And that raises money for travel awards for student graduate students. And organizing the graduate student speaking contest with Dr. Leah Broman, who does a great job. So that's the big part of being C-5 chair is to, is to manage the, the conference. Then the other part is, is getting information out on the C-5 email, on uh, any jobs that are out there, any industry needs, mm-hmm. like the We Are Golf Day that GCSA had. Uh, we, we, we blasted the, the C-5 folks with that, and just to keep the information flowing. And keep us moving in the right direction.
0: And you did some traveling representing C five uh, at non turf venues as well this year, didn't you?
1: Oh uh, yes, yes I did, <laughs> <laughs> I did, I did. We've had some. Let's see, we had. Uh, well, I was at the We Are Golf thing uh, event, I at the event there in Washington D.C. That was really interesting to work with GCsA, and we meet with um, uh, various uh, industry folks. I was down lobbying down in D.C. for the plant sciences. This weekend, there's the Mushroom
0: Festival Parade in Kennett Square, Pennsylvania. I was invited to be in the parade on that. Are you the Grand Marshal? You you ought to be the Grand Marshal of the Mushroom Parade down there in <laughs> Kennett Square. For for many people that have no idea about uh, Kennett Square, Pennsylvania and Mike's background, mushroom farming is in your blood from as long as you can remember, I believe. And, yes. and uh, Kennett Square is in fact where a majority of the Mushrooms in the United States uh, are grown.
1: Yes, that, that's still true. Uh, I grew up there in Avondale, Kenneth Square area. My father was a mushroom farmer. I grew up on a mushroom farm, and and I loved it. Uh, seeing this, these mushroom crops this flourish from these compost beds. I thought this is what I want to do, and <laughs> and I went to Penn State because if you want to study agriculture, you have to go to Penn State. Of course, that was you know if you live in Pennsylvania, that's what you did. That's Right. And then when I got to Penn State, uh, I got my degree was in agricultural sciences. I met um, Dr. Don Waddington. Yep turf soil scientist and he convinced me to stay on for get a master's degree and i learned a great deal from him uh, research wise and soils wise and then it just i moved my career in a different direction and dr denoden had an opportunity for me to to go down to maryland for a phd but that was my background i was going to be a mushroom farmer
0: so now you're president of our research division uh, that we're hosting the meeting in baltimore and so you had a chance to look at all the papers that got submitted so you're probably a good person to ask how does the research and uh, information look uh for what what we're going to be looking at in baltimore this year how would you characterize the sort of wealth and or depth and breadth of the knowledge that we're going to talk about this uh, November?
1: Well, you know, it's the, the graduate student papers. About half of the papers are graduate student papers, and half are, are from us regular academic folks and some industry folks, you know, professors and, and scientists. And those graduate student papers are so insightful. They're, they're doing the cutting-edge work, and many of them are molecular-based. Mm-hmm. And so we're really looking behind the curtain at the genetics behind abiotic stress.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, you know how, how can we manage turf to to help turf overcome these abiotic stresses, and what's the molecular basis for that? So that that seems to be an uh, interesting theme. And there's also more papers on cultural practices this year, which is good to see.
0: And I'm sure there's a few uh, microbiome, uh, you know, microbial ecology papers coming as well, yes?
1: Yeah, we're starting to see more of that, the microbiomes, the phytobiomes, looking at the, yes, the microbiology of the soil root zone. There's a lot more research headed in that direction. Um, it's really interesting to see what's going to come up, what's going to become, because I think the last several years the techniques have gotten uh, so much better to study the biology around the, the rhizosphere, the root zone. Really interesting to see what's going to come of that. We just need some really smart grad students working on it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly right. So a couple of things that are critical here, Mike, that I want to wrap up our conversation with. Oh, sure. First off is the role that graduate students play. I just saw that your alma mater is starting three separate uh, endowed graduate student uh, fellowships for graduate students. Uh, How about a plug for the superintendents to support their land-grant institutions graduate student education program.
1: Oh, yeah, that's very important. I know the, the local chapters here have golf tournaments for undergraduate scholarships, and that's very much appreciated. Of course, uh, Turf Equipment Supply Company, they have a scholarship here at Burke's Campus for students. But also, we, we, we need some funding for graduate students, because that's really how we're going to move the, the uh, knowledge base forward. And we're very fortunate. up at the University of Park, I have to give credit to John Kaminsky and Pete Lanskoot and Andy McNitt for, for putting their funding together. And leveraging it with Penn State getting some matching funds to, mm-hmm. to develop these three fellowships, one named for Matt Schaefer, one's name for Paul Latchell, and one's name for Andy McNitt. And this will keep sort of perpetual funding. That We'll be able to fund three grad students a year. That is so important it'll allow guys like me to, to, to develop my ag center while I have gradle students doing the real work. That's you know right. What I mean? That's right. That's <laughs> no, right. It's really important to, 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 move, to move that needle forward. Like in a year like we've had, excessive rain, excessive moisture, these superintendents want answers, and the only way we're going to get answers is by real research.
0: That's right. So so now as we wrap up, Mike, yes. you know, your role as the representing us in C5 for the variety of ways that you do it and the tasks at hand, You know, what what does the future hold for those that might be interested in, you know, even getting a master's degree, never mind a Ph.D., but just maybe being a more applied scientist? We see the early indications of people like Steve McDonald, for example, and you and I know the private work that uh, Mark Mahatty in California and Larry Stoll does. Um, So what do you think the role is of the modern scientist uh, that you represent that's doing both research and extension with a master's degree or a PhD yeah. in academics. I, I got to believe that it's it's an important job to talk about science with the public. No,
1: I, I think so. And, and I think, look, there, there's room for everybody at this table. Um, you know, as, as, a, as a university professor, we, we can't do it. all. We can't do all the teaching. We can't do all the research. We can't do all the outreach. Even the outreach that we do, as you know, universities they want us to teach more because that's more tuition dollars that's needed, and they want us to do more research because that's funding that comes in. Doing extension work is is nice, but it doesn't bring in the funding that research and teaching does, So, so there can be some debates there. So there's room for folks with a master's degree to go out and, and consult and work in partnership with all of us. I, I think there's definitely room for more, uh, and we need more eyes on the ground. We need more <laughs> input. We, we all can work together here, that's for sure. And there's, I think I'm very optimistic. I think there's so many opportunities, both in industry and in academia, but there's so many opportunities here in this segment of the green industry. And there's some really talented folks that come out with master's degrees, and they could go into business for themselves or work for, work for industry and work in sales and work in research, but, but there's some talented folks coming through the pipeline. So I'm, I'm very optimistic.
0: Mike Fedanza, thank you for joining me on this episode of Frankly Speaking. It is so wonderful to hear your Southeast PA accent talking about being a mushroom <laughs> farmer. That. You don't know how that warms my heart, Paizan.
1: Thank you. And, and that's how I got interested in ferrying, believe it or not, sort of the, uh, indirectly uh, from my mushroom farming background. So it all comes full circle.
0: <laughs> Thanks again, Mike. Appreciate it. Best of luck down there. And I'll see you in Baltimore in November.
1: You got it. I appreciate it, right.
0: Frank. Thank you. We'll be right back with some final thoughts. Professor Mike Fidanza is among the most charming, engaging, and competent turfgrass scientists in the world today. Raised on a mushroom farm only to find himself a passionate researcher and educator around fairy ring organisms and the instigator of Frisky Fairy Ring Fridays on Twitter. Mike represents the modern turfgrass scientist with his full engagement in teaching the next generation of students, researching the challenges facing the turfgrass professional today, and representing the scientific community in policy and government affairs. Always with a smile, a handshake, and a can-do attitude. Thank you for joining me on Frankly Speaking. I'm Frank Ross.